The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. It's the Ellis Martin Report. If you stay tuned, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Is it strange that companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here? No way. They want you to know what's going on. Catch us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, I'll speak with Brad Thompson, CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics has developed a reovirus called Reolysin that attacks cancer tumors while leaving healthy cells alone. Nobilis Health Corporation is with us. Nobilis trades on the Amex under the symbol HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. And the silver guru David Morgan of the Morgan Report joins me for a full discussion as to whether or not silver has hit a triple bottom and why it might be just the right time to jump in and accumulate physical silver if you haven't already done so. Let's begin the program. David Morgan is an expert on silver, gold, and precious metals investments. He's a world-renowned lecturer appearing on CNBC and the Fox Business Channel. He's an author having penned Get the Skinny on Silver Investing. And Mr. Morgan is a regular contributor and friend of the Ellis Martin Report. David, welcome back to the program. Ellis, it's good to be back. I decided day before yesterday, actually, that the bottom was in. I made my own personal decision that the bottom was in with regard to silver. Even though I've been watching a decline in gold and silver for quite a long time. I'm at the place in Santa Monica. The name of the place is called Wilshire Coin. I'll give them a plug. And the young man behind the counter, by young I mean he was probably in his late 20s, early 30s. Very young compared to me. And he said to me, yeah, it's being manipulated. (laughs) I didn't expect that to come out of the mouth of a young dealer. He said that. And I thought, well, geez, is that really still true? Is that what's going on? And then I was listening to an interview you had done with the SGT report very recently. And that was the gist of that conversation. Basically, the gist of the what, what I understand from the interview is the manipulation is ongoing and nobody in power, whoever those folks are, want to see uh, any sort of value with regard to silver or gold. Uh, where do you stand on this today in November? Well, I've been pretty consistent. I mean, basically what I've said forever is that the long-term trend cannot be manipulated. And within the long-term trend, certainly it is. From time to time, I am not in the camp that, you know, every squiggle, every dollar move is kind of at their beck and call. I mean, when silver ran from 19 to 48, you know, how much manipulation was going on? I don't know, if any. Certainly, I do know when it's running hard, what they do is they stand aside and they wait for the market to exhaust. And then once the market is exhausted, which means it's like throwing a ball up in the air, it loses momentum and it actually gets to the apex and then it reverses and comes the other direction. That's a pretty darn good analogy for what happens in any market and especially when it's as small as the silver market. So the point is that yes, these markets are all manipulated and what I said in the recent interview was that if you can manipulate money, by definition, all markets are manipulated because everything stems from the currency supply and what the interest rate on the future value of that money is. So I think I'm consistent there. I don't like to play the manipulation card constantly because to me, 
it shows sort of a weakness to know the underlying fundamentals and why you know everyone should have some and the idea that you don't have to take responsibility because you know if you buy it and it goes down well they manipulated on me well you gotta you know use your head and buy when you know it's undervalued and as far as the sale goes it's going to be something I think is going to be rather difficult for me when I make my call because there'll be such a fervor around the metals that anyone that even thinks of selling them will be <laughs> we might be despised at that moment in time but I'll approach that when the time comes so probably a long answer but a uh, significant answer because most people in fact some that were in the camp of you know there's no manipulation or whatever in the last few years have basically come into the camp that yes these markets are manipulated and most in the camps that are oh this or that may be manipulated are now in a camp that almost all markets if not all markets are manipulated i mean of course this is provable for several aspects one is the working group on financial markets and secondly the libor scandal which is public knowledge in the public forums all over the place and again that goes back to my main point is if you can uh, manipulate the interest rates you can manipulate anything because everything derives from that was this market manipulated up a few years ago especially with regard to gold we know that oil was probably manipulated up and as much as we could debate whether oil's coupled to gold and silver or not aren't we seeing sort of a natural drift down to where silver and gold should be well, that's a great question i want to get into semantics here sort of depends on how you define the word manipulation i mean when markets have momentum there's lots of momentum players in fact most of the software programs that you buy and some are rather inexpensive and some are ex still extremely expensive are basically momentum programs so what you had on the way up was you had a lot of hedge funds that had a lot of cash that said oh look at that thing move it's moving i'm on board and that makes it move even more for a while and so more people and funds move in and so was that manipulation mm. so who's the other side the other side are the commercials and they take the short side and they get all the data i mean most people these days can get a lot of data and so what you look at is how much volume is coming in because all movement in markets especially if they're free markets move based on the amount of volume how much is wanted if a little bit's wanted then a big move is unwarranted but if a lot is wanted a lot of buying pressure that means the market's going to move up a lot of selling pressure that means the market will move down so they see it and so they'll take some rather what i call schoolboy positions on the way up but they pretty much stand aside because why because they know what they're doing so was it manipulated in a way? Mm, i would say not so much that it was manipulated as it was a momentum play very similar to the oil market and then again, as I said earlier, it exhausts. So that's what they're looking for. They're looking for the volume to decrease, 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 decrease. And when all buyers are in, it's an easy short, very easy short, as long as you know that the market's exhausted. In other words, there's no volume left anymore. So that's what they did. They, meaning the commercials or the bullion banks or combination thereof. They looked at that. And you see it in a smaller way, too. I mean... On days where the market's, you know, more volatile, you will see them, them meaning the commercial, step aside and not put on many contracts until, it's what I call, let it run. And they'll let the market run. They'll let all the buyers in. There has to be some sellers on the other side. There are, but they don't really start massively selling until it's to their advantage. So once the run has been made and the volume 
decreases substantially and there aren't many buyers left, then they will start to short. And for every seller, there has to be a buyer and vice versa, which is the big argument, and that's true. But what they have to do is match orders. And this is what these commercials are phenomenally good at is matching orders. So let's say we're at the top, let's say it's $48 silver back in the last day of April 2011, and you want to sell 10,000 contracts. Those orders have to match, but there's no one out there in the world that wants to buy at 48 as an example. So what happens? Well, there's 10,000 for sale. Somehow they got to match and the exchange will match them and they'll match those sales with open orders, which are market orders. So then someone said, well, you know, I missed silver at, on the way up to 48, but I think 40 is a good buy, so I, I want 100 contracts at 40 as an example, so that sell matches at 40 and it clears, and now you got 100 sales at 40, and there's a gap between the $48 price and the $40 price. Now, that is not what happened. I do this for example and illustration purposes only, but that's how gaps are developed in the chart. And once the downward pressure starts, as I just outlined, it'll go really hard and really fast. And these guys then are absolutely in control and they'll just keep selling more and more and more. And of course, they've already sold some on the way up and they'll just push it down and down and down. So it's pretty evident from anybody that looks at the data and knows what they're looking at that the most of the let's say activity that has been directed to control the level of price movement has mostly been on the downside or the short side but i have to say in all fairness that on the way up there were a whole lot of momentum players that were jumping on board because it was moving so strongly up and the powers that be or the ones that know the most or control the most were letting it do its thing i mean it's like stepping in front of a freight train when do you step in front of a freight train when it's going 100 kilometers an hour or when it's coming in the depot and it's about ready to roll to rest well then it's pretty safe to step into front of it i think i try to make it very clear so everyone can understand it because it's important to Understand. I mean, there's a lot of people that base it all on emotion. Oh, they manipulated, or they didn't, or they don't, or they will, or they David doesn't, you know, all that stuff. And I, I don't have time for it, really. But that's how it works, and that's how it's been working. And it's been working in their favor for quite some time. And one more thing, even though I belabored the point, Ellis, and that is the psychology. And that's something that no one really talks about. I did a interview all about the psychology of the markets with my friend Sherry Wilcox two years ago. And it actually caught quite a bit of attention on the internet for a while because this is when the market fundamentally kind of gives up and that was at the $26 silver level on the $1550 gold level and those massive sales that no one in their right mind would sell that much at one time unless they wanted one thing to happen and well two things to happen one they wanted the price to get crushed for both the metals and they wanted the psychology to change from somewhat bullish to fairly bullish to bullish to oh my goodness I wish I never even heard of the precious metal and they accomplished that both of those things they crushed the metals downward, both gold and silver, and more importantly, they crushed the psychology of the market that bullish people turned bearish. People that were waiting to buy decided not to, and uh, a lot went on at that juncture. I ought to be able to answer this question, but I'm asking you, and maybe you could be more objective and put some analysis into the answer. Why do people like me, who are very conservative with regard to investing, and even with physical metal, and you're always telling your subscribers, 
people like me to accumulate physical metal. Why do people like me just decide yesterday or the day before to, that this is probably the bottom or maybe a dollar or two away from the bottom? Now's a good time to accumulate. What's the psychology behind that? Well, I can't speak for you. I mean, that's the whole <laughs> point, really. It's an individual case-by-case basis. I mean, there are people that are willing, very patient, and they've got an objective, and they may not have an exact price point, but they all of a sudden realize, or not even say all of a sudden, they've been watching the market for a long time, and they realize, you know, I it's bounced off this level. Maybe they don't know that consciously, but subconsciously. We certainly have bounced off the uh, 1417, 1411. I think the last print a couple of days ago was around the 1420 level. So right now, as we're doing your show, Ellis, uh, we have a triple bottom. Does that mean that it is a triple bottom? No. Because I need to see more data, we've only come off that bottom for like a day or a day and a half, and we're early in this session right now. But that could be it. Certainly looks like it is. And the other part of it is fundamentally, you're buying it at a price cheaper than almost any mine on the planet can mine it for, except save one that I know of. And so you're buying it at a very, very valuable, value-based price, meaning you're buying it for uh, what most silver miners can't manufacture that. So it's a great buy, especially if you do it in a manner that's, you know, it's not your life savings. You're not betting the farm. You're not putting everything that you own into the silver or gold market. You're taking an approach and you probably have the idea that maybe if it goes lower, you could buy some more. I don't know, but a lot of people do that. So, but it's a case by case, individual by individual basis. That's what makes a market. And that's why markets cannot be predicted 100% of the time. Markets can be predicted fairly accurately for a great percentage of the time. But people are people, and they are unpredictable all of the time. And that's why you have things like the long-term capital management blow up, because their math model was there are predictabilities that would get within certain ranges. And when they're off so many sigmas, and I'm not trying to impress anybody, it's just a, a Greek letter that means how far out of the normal range something is, were so extreme that it was impossible for that to go on. But it did. And that's because human behavior cannot be predicted all the time. And because of that fact, you have to be very careful in any market. So could the markets go much lower? Sure, they could. The other part of it is that with silver around the $14 level, the premiums are still up somewhat, not as high as they were a month or two ago when we're having a retail shortage, but they're still up there fairly decent. And if silver were to drop to say 12 as a quick thought experiment, you would probably see the premium come back in the market rather aggressively, which means this. You can buy silver today at say 14 and change and pay 15 to get it. If silver were to drop to 12, you'd probably still be paying somewhere around 15 to get it, even though the paper price has dropped $2. And I'm doing that again as a thought experiment or as an example to let people know the realities of the physical market versus the paper paradigm. If you wanted to buy silver at 12 and you had a futures account ready to go and you could pull the trigger either on your computer or call your broker and establish a position at that point in time, then certainly you could take delivery on $12 silver, which would end up costing you somewhere around, I don't know, $12.35 or so. Because no one buys at spot as the full price. You can lock in the spot price, but then even if you're buying raw silver, which means commercial bars, what you actually get is some more paperwork. You've got to fill out some paperwork for the exchange that costs money. You've got to do this transfer thing that costs money. And then you've got to transport it to your house, which costs money. So by the time you get those bars in your hand, you have paid spot plus 
some amount in order to do the paperwork and the transportation costs that are involved. So when you trade at spot back and forth and back and forth, all you're doing is you're trading derivatives. You're not trading physical metal. If you're trading physical metal, there's an added cost to it. I decided when I accumulated some silver this week, I decided that I was willing to average down. So believing that there was a bottom, but yet knowing that more downside was probable, I decided that I will make some future purchases should the price drop. That's probably not a bad philosophy. Absolutely. I've been a subscriber of yours for quite a long time. I would say six or seven years right now. We're going up to the Silver Summit. We're both going to be there. What are you going to be telling fellow subscribers, possible new subscribers about the state of the market right now with regard to silver and and junior mining companies? And also, what's new? Well, I'm going to speak about silver in the 21st century. So I'm going to take kind of a longer view on it, looking at, of course, the monetary aspect and, of course, the industrial aspect. There's a little commotion around the solar industry because there is a company that's come out named NatCore that is using aluminum for solar panels. We interviewed the CEO extensively, we meaning Chris Marchese and myself, we were at the New Orleans Gold Show. I think it's possible that it could be a disruptive technology, but I don't think it's going to be disruptive for years from now. And it's not because I'm super bullish on silver. It's because I'm objective as I can possibly be. So there's a lot to look at in the silver market. And of course, the main thing that is way bigger than silver is what is the context for the global economy? and what is the context for the global financial markets because there's been a huge disconnect between the financial markets and the real economy and because of that fact people need to really be reassured about what the truth is and how they can position themselves not only financially because it's bigger than money for what is actually taking place in the real world and this is something that you're not going to get from the mainstream financial press or from the mainstream media and that's why people that write in the alternative media, write newsletters or do things such as myself and many others, it's very important if you're awake because you want to really get through that cloud, let's say, and really see what's happening so you can actually anticipate the future with some degree of assuredness that it's going to be such and such rather than what the pictures painted on the mainstream press. In the past, we discussed a uh, mobile mill company that you're a shareholder in. I'm curious as to any updates, anything new with regard to that company. Well, as you know, as a member of the Morgan Report, we finally were able to produce the uh, first initial report. It was yesterday. It was a long time coming. Uh, We had the whole report done and all the videos done. Our premium members get to watch the videos that we do on these site tours. And this one's actually quite extensive, probably more than some that we do. And those will be uploaded for any members that are listening to this. They will be uploaded here shortly. But we had the report done, and just before we were going to issue the report, in fact, ahead of schedule, we were giving information from the company that there was going to be a restructuring of the whole situation. And so that made it where our hands were absolutely tied, could not say anything, and had to wait for a public announcement to be made before we were allowed to say anything by law. So obviously we adhered to that. We didn't want any of our members to get in trouble, nor of course ourselves. And so we just stuck to our guns and know what the facts are. And we had no inside information. In fact, I didn't know the details until it was public information, which is how it should be. Sometimes these companies will kind of whisper to an analyst or a newsletter writer or something that really they be better off if they don't. But it happens. It's happened with me and I just keep my mouth shut because it's basically inside our information. And so you really are restricted to the law, which is a level playing field. Ha ha. I say that ha ha because we see some of the, let's say, other entities not participating with that, but I do. 
So until it's public information or publicly disclosed, I just wait. And once that's established, then, of course, we move onward. So right now, it's a preliminary, not exchange approved, but that doesn't change the technology. And so we put out the report on the technology. Of course, we gave the particulars from the news release that is public domain information for everybody to go ahead and check out. And once this exchange approves this transaction, which I expect that they will, then we'll probably make a tip our hat and say we suggest this as a speculative situation. So hopefully I didn't talk around that too much. still (laughs) exciting. I really like it. I like the people involved. I actually like the restructuring. I think it's going to be very beneficial to shareholders longer term but you know i can't say a whole lot because it's not a done deal yet you know it's sort of like a ball game kind of situation we're in the third quarter and the fourth quarter need to be played so we don't know the outcome yet so we're talking essentially for the listeners that have not heard us discuss this before we're talking about a company that has mobile mills they can bring to a mine site alleviating the uh, junior mining company of the expense of having to build a mill so they have access to actually process whether it be mineral rich tailings or whether it be assets near the service process uh, that right away and generate some income into the company's coffers Right, yeah, well said. Well said. I'll add on to it. Basically, it's gravity feed gold. And if you can crush it at the beginning and stick in the hopper of this mobile mill, you basically get gold out the other end. And then it's on a shared basis with this company that we're so high on and the uh, company itself. And the big thing are uh, two things. One is it's non-dilutive to the shareholders. So if you have mining company ABC and the ABC company has gravity feed gold, it's a good way for them to finance without diluting the shareholders. It really changes the junior mining industry. And I want to emphasize we're junior mining industry for those that do have gravity feed, gold primarily. You could do with other things, but gold so high dollar worth per unit volume that gold is the best way to go. And so there are many of those out there, and some of these are in locations that water is the huge issue. And since this system contains its own water and loses very little, you might be able to start processing at a pretty good mill uh, flow-through rate and only see a water truck come in, let's say, on a weekly basis type of thing. So it is exciting, but it's not real well proven. We go through that in our report. We're about as you know straight up as they come i mean we're going to let you know the facts and the facts are this thing is not run seven days a week for two months straight not saying it's designed to do that but it's designed to mill so that would be let's just say conservatively uh, 10 hour days five days a week again and again and again and it hasn't had those kind of hours put on it so i'm convinced the technology works What I'm not convinced of is whether or not this thing is durable enough at this point in time to, you know, continuously operate. But those challenges can be overcome. I mean, that's part of the learning process. And maybe it can. I don't know. I'm just trying to be honest here. So it's a really interesting speculation. I really like it. I think it's worth some bet a little to win a lot. I think it certainly could be that type of a situation. These are the kind of speculations that we seek out. We've known about this for years. And finally, a little bit of load off my shoulders that we're able to get the preliminary report out. And of course, once this deal is completed, then we will do follow-up reports for our members only and continue to update it as this situation continues to progress. And how does one become a subscriber of the Morgan Report if they're not already? There's a couple of ways. One, you can just call our office, 480-325-0230. That's 
480-325-0230. Just phone in. Our staff can take the uh, credit card information over the phone. All the prices are on the website, but basically, if you want the premium service where you get all the videos and the basic reports and uh, everything that we do that we film throughout the year and all the updates that I do on the trades that I'm making, explaining the charts and the commodities, etc. That's roughly 300 a year. I think if you pay in advance, you get a pretty good discount if you pay every six months. So I think it's exactly 300 a year. Those type of services are usually 5,000 a year. Silver's the people's metal. So I've always been kind of on the under promise and over deliver. It's kind of my motto, really. So that's that. You know, you can call in or you can just go to the website. If you want to put your uh, information through the uh, system on the website, you can do that as well. Well, David, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, and I'll see you in San Francisco at the Silver Summit. Thanks for joining me today. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Resource stocks, gold, silver, rare earth elements, oil and gas stocks. Learn about them by going to our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Bram Thompson. President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated. Trading on the OTCQX as ONCY. And on the TSX as ONC. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human rheovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks very much. Since you've had cancer, how does one who is diagnosed with cancer work through the shock of the discovery and then the choices that lie ahead of them regarding therapy? How do you learn to trust your oncologist, your caregiver? Or is that something you just do as a given? It's a bit of a revelation and not in a positive way when you get a phone call from a doctor or a testing group or whoever to say, you've got something here and we've got to take care of it. And in my case, with my general practitioner who I went to with a mole that was not a mole, she took a biopsy and I just kind of forgot about it. And the next morning I got a phone call actually from a fellow that was a year ahead of me at university that I knew going, oh, hi, Brad, we haven't talked for a while, but I'm operating on you on Monday. This was on a Friday and I'm like what it was a bit of a shock I have to say you know when one minute life is fine and the next minute life is kind of tenuous it is a shock now I mean I have a, a bit of an advantage because this is you know the business I'm in so I was able to kind of go through and evaluate the option and go through all that which I would encourage people to do especially in, in some cancers the field is moving so quickly it's unreasonable and candidly a little unfair to expect a practitioner in the area to spend the 10 minutes a day they're not helping patients out keeping up on the newest therapies so, you know, I was fully armed with the current state of the art when I went in for surgery two days later. And anybody familiar with the Canadian healthcare system will tell you that that kind of surgical response time tells you how serious people took it. I had the surgery and all the follow-ups and those sorts of things, but it's something that you have to be on guard with for the rest of your life. I mean, I had, I had melanoma, this sort of thing that when you hear that M word, you know that for the rest of your life, you're going to have to be watching because you're never safe. You're never cured. And it changes everything. It changed how I approached going outside. Um, even though as an adult, it's kind of too late to stay out of the sun. You still do it. And it changed, you know, diet. It changed habits. It's, you know, my family, of course, it changed their perspective on me. You sort of look around at 
Brad in this case, I think he's kind of eternal, and all of a sudden the next day he's not. It's a big change in your outlook and a big change in your perspective. But it's certainly having that personal experience, and then I had a couple of other close family members die within months of that happening of cancer. It really focuses you on what's, I think, important, you know, the business side of my life, which is developing a drug for cancer. I don't need to be motivated in the morning to get up and to focus on trying to push our product along and try to help people out. Let's talk about your proprietary technology, Reolysin, which is essentially a real virus designed to attack cancerous tumors like a virus would, leaving the surrounding cells intact. Well, the real virus is a very common virus found in the environment. My analogy, which works in wet places, if you were outside today and it was raining, which in L.A. isn't exactly the best analogy to use usually, but many places it is. If you're outside and it's raining and you're splashing water on your legs, you're splashing real virus on your leg. And that is absolutely true. It's found almost everywhere in the environment. And it's because it's a virus that infects mammals. So a dog can get it and pass it on to a squirrel who can get it and then pass it on to a cat who can then pass it on to you. It's very common. But it actually doesn't cause any disease. It's a, a virus that infects people but doesn't cause a disease. And, uh, I mean, a disease from a virus is just a side effect of whatever damage the virus may or may not do. And if it doesn't do any damage, then there's no disease. The reason we're interested in as a cancer therapy is that, you know, in the literature, in the scientific literature, since the 1800s, every few years, somebody would note that a patient was dying of cancer and would come down with a mild flu-like illness and mysteriously basically leap out of bed, you know, and fly out the window, whatever you think you want to say, and they'd be fine. And this has captivated, the, you know, our research community forever. And as a result of that, there's a number of viruses that are under development for cancer research. Now, the real virus is different than the rest of them. Every one of them is unique. Because it's so commonly found in the environment, we just had a feeling that it would be safe. And it has a very special set of unique properties and a twofold way of actually working. The first way is if you have the right genetic profile. There's certain genetic defects that lead to cancer. And if you have the right genetic profile, then the virus, when it enters into a cancer cell, will replicate and kill that cell in two or three days. Real virus all by itself without the immune system or anything else really is effective at combating tumor growth. And we've shown in multiple clinical studies now that the virus is actually reducing tumor burden in patients. And that by itself has a lot of value. There's a lot of value in that. We've been kind of looking for years about differential effects and overall survival, which is the other thing that people are interested in, of course, in, in cancer therapy. And, you know, once you've reduced the tumor, then the question is, do you also extend lifespan? And what we think is happening with the real virus is that the virus, any lifespan benefits you may accrue on that, comes from it interacting with the immune system. It does so in two ways. The first is that it actually upregulates the immune response or, or increases the immune response against tumors by replicating in tumors. And so the body looks at it and goes, that's a virus infection, and it's in a specific tissue, and I'm going to attack that virus infection wherever it is. And in this case, it's in a tumor. And so you amount effectively like the same kind of defense you'd have against an infectious disease, a bacterial infection, or if you have a parasite, I mean, you get the same, all the same kind of immune responses, and it's targeted against where the virus is, which in this case is in a tumor. That's pretty well defined now. Now more recently, so real virus helps the immune system by basically visualizing the tumor. It's like I'm here and the immune system attacks it. And that's great. And it looks like it's doing that. The second thing it does is it actually upregulates these things called agents, PD-1, PD-L1 is what people will, may have heard. And they actually interfere with that immune response. But that allows all these new drugs that are based on that 
to actually work better. So you have a virus infection that's killing tumor directly that causes the immune system to do something directly, but it also works with these new classes of drugs that people are working at to monkey around with the immune system, and it looks like it's doing its job that way as well. It's a very complicated agent, but it really seems to be targeted, focused right on the thing that needs to count, which is it's helping the immune system do its job. So usually the immune system is in place to protect cells, and the real virus is there acting as a target to attack the cancerous tumor. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the immune system is critical. I mean, everybody knows that. I mean, without the immune system, you would die very quickly from infection and a variety of other things. But the immune system, it's basic big picture thing is that it gets rid of things that are foreign, like things that don't belong. When it's working properly, you know, if you get a virus infection or a bacterial infection, or if you have a parasite, if you have a parasitic worm or things like that, then that the immune system will target that and get rid of it. And that's what it's supposed to do. But it also targets and, and gets rid of cancer every day. Like everybody you see walking around on the street has had cancer. Most people don't actually have the disease cancer though. And that's because the immune system targets and gets rid of that just routinely. 99.99% of the time. It's that 0.001% of the time when the immune system misses it that that cancer has a chance to grow and turn into a disease. You know, when people get cancer, usually it's a disease of aging when your immune system starts to get weaker. That's most cancer patients are unfortunately my age or older and you know, your immune system starts kind of dying off when you get older. The immune system does some other things though that are caught, you know, could cause problems. I mean, you have all these autoimmune diseases and that's like some of the arthritis type arthritic conditions and things like that and those are as a result of the immune system mistaking your own body as being foreign it shouldn't be there so that the immune system actually attacks your own tissues like healthy tissues and that's how you get these diseases it's a big area in medicine either turning the immune system away from doing the wrong thing or trying to amplify the good things that it does and what real virus does is actually amplify the good things it actually causes the immune system to go oh there's a tumor that I missed. I didn't see that before. I'm going to go after it. That's quite a unique and special thing. So we've identified that a weakened immune system is a potential precursor for cancer. What are some of the things that weaken the immune system in conjunction with age or separate from that stress? Diet, that sort of thing. Absolutely. And this isn't meant to scare people, but it might. If you have a sleepless night for whatever reason, you're worried about something, you just didn't sleep well, your neighbors were making noise all night and you couldn't sleep, whatever the reason, in the morning you are technically immune suppressed. It just takes as little as one sleepless night can actually reduce your immune system. And people know this intuitively. I mean, people are always talking about how I was tired, then I got a cold, or I got run down, then I got the flu. That kind of day-to-day stress and lack of sleep, really bad sleeps. You know, if you take an overnight flight on an airplane where you know you got the altitude issues and it's dry and you didn't sleep well, all those things cause low-grade immune suppression, but to the point where people actually can get sick, and they do. When you get older, basically you're like that all the time. And I mean, as your body ages, so does your immune system. There's quite a bit of work going on in our community uh, looking at ways to kind of selectively boost the immune system as people age to try to prevent that from happening. And you know, and that's mostly directed at trying to make sure you don't get infection. One of the leading causes of deaths for people again my age and older is getting things like pneumonia and things like that. And it's a real risk factor. So I mean, if you can just boost the immune system gently in however you do it, that has a lot of medical benefits to reduce infection. But it also has a nice side effect of probably reducing cancer rates as well. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. So one of the most important things you can do to protect your immune system is to eliminate stress and create a peaceful, undisturbed sleep environment. 
Oh, absolutely. And taking regular exercise, and it doesn't have to be hyper-vigorous exercise. I mean, I'm still surprised at how little exercise reduces things like Alzheimer's risk dramatically. I'm about to sound Canadian here. If you go on three one-kilometer walks a week, so three little over half-mile walks a week, which isn't very much walking, I mean, you reduce your risk of dementia and Alzheimer's by a huge percentage just by walking. You don't have to go out and run a marathon to get the, the health benefits from that, but you get the same thing on your immune system, just eating well, watching your weight, Getting sleep and taking mild exercise has just huge benefits at risk reductions and all sorts of things, including cancer. And then you're legitimately tired so you can get a full night's sleep. I mean, I have trouble sleeping, which doesn't surprise anybody. And my doctor's advice to me was don't drink coffee like the way you do in the evening because I drink buckets of coffee. I mean, I just live on coffee. And get exercise in the evening, which is normally viewed as a taboo. You know, you shouldn't exercise in the evening. But if I exercise in the evening and I stay away from caffeine, I sleep beautifully. Boy, do I feel good the next day. So it's pretty immediate. It's a good thing. Interesting. I'm glad we're able to provide this information to our listening audience, Brad. I'm one of those people who likes to hop on the treadmill at night. I didn't know that it was helping me protect my immune system by assisting and giving me a good night's sleep, which I always get after doing so. Let's talk about the investment potential of this company. I was reading the other day where biotech giant Amgen was earmarking about $1 billion towards a buyout candidate. Will Oncolytics Biotech be that kind of buyout target in the near future? It's hard to say if we'd be a target for Amgen specifically. I mean, Amgen's a very good company. They have very good people working for them, and they will go out and find a company or companies, and more likely the case, that fits into their profile, either into an area they want to go into that's new or bolsters areas that they're already working in. So if we fit that profile, then Amgen will come and talk to us. And if we don't fit that profile, then Amgen will be talking to other people. Amgen has bought numerous companies in the past and has gotten programs from other people in the past. I mean, their program that resulted in the first virus being approved for cancer therapy in the United States was actually a result of them buying a company from the U.K., called BioVex. So they have a long track record of working in this area. Will you wait for the maximum share price possible beforehand when considering buyout or takeover options? That's what we're in business for is, is to maximize shareholder value. Different people have different perspectives on this, but I mean, if we get a legitimate buyout offer, we will always take it to our shareholders. I've never been one to get in the way of shareholders deciding offer is legitimate or not and encouraging them to vote however we feel. They should get the chance at voting on it. My personal view would be to wait till we get to a maximum share value within our program before that event happens and and that's how we're planning our program. You've been in the business a long time and of course you're a doctor. Let's look at your company as objectively as possible. With all the research that you've done and all the clinical trials completed and patients that you've treated, around 1,100 of them so far, how advanced in cancer research and treatment is Oncolytics Biotech compared to other companies in the sector with a comparable market cap? Well, there's a big spectrum of market caps. The companies all at the same levels and quite a discontinuity of market caps. And I think when people look at companies like ours, they are looking to see definitive clinical data before they actually participate in the way that we'd like them to participate, which is being a shareholder. And that's really, I think, the differentiation on, on market caps in companies in biotech right now is the companies that have definitive, very clear-cut clinical data, it doesn't matter what stage of development they're at, get better valuations at ones that have either complicated or need more work. Certainly, as we've talked about, I mean, real virus and real license is a very complicated agent. So I think People are really waiting to see more clear-cut data. But um, I mean, I know companies that have products that are sitting in front of the FDA waiting for product approval that have market caps less than their cash. 
it's really all over the place. You just have to face the good clinical data and getting product approval in the end will result in you know evaluation that all your shareholders will be happy with. And the kind of bumps in the road along the way are bumps in the road along the way. But you haven't had too many of those bumps from what I can observe. We have an agent in every clinical study that we've done has shown positive outcomes, but it's also showed complications. Now, subsequent clinical studies that we do approach those complications to make sure that they work. For example, I mean, us finally discovering the involvement of the immune system and the very complicated involvement with our agent is sort of at the end of the program, not at the start of the program. And so people are waiting right now. They're saying, okay, real virus kills tumors really well, Brad. How does the immune system work on working with overall survival? I mean, how's that working out? And I think once we answer that question, then I think people will be far more comfortable about participating in our company. And I think that's a pretty common picture that you see with agents that aren't straightforward. People like to have that kind of certainty before they invest. There's thousands of biotech companies now. And that's nice from an investor perspective because that gives you a menu of things that you can take a look at and say, well, this one's really certain. This one looks great, but it's going to be a while. This one I don't have a clue about. And they make their investment decisions based on, usually on a package approach to looking at the industry. Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, and I'm glad we were able to take a look at cancer prevention as well. Thanks so much for chatting with me. Well, thank you very much, Alice. Have a good day. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech, trading on the TSX as ONC and of the U.S. on the OTCQX as ONCY. That's ONCY. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Green tech, clean tech, biotech, and just tech. Find an assortment of potential investment opportunities. EllisMartinReport.com Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for an interview with Patrick Yoder, the Vice President of Sales for Noblest Health, trading on the TSX under the symbol NHC.TO and in the U.S. as HLTH. Noblest Health strategically partners with physicians in the development and management of ambulatory surgical centers, or ASCs, with the mission of providing superior medical care, increased patient satisfaction, and lower costs for health care delivery. Noblest, under its previous name Northstar Healthcare, recently acquired Acquired Athos Health for $34 million. Athos, based in Dallas, focused on the marketing and delivery of specialized healthcare services in seven states. Patrick, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks, Ellis. I'm glad to be here. What are the responsibilities accompanying your position at Nobilis? Well, I am the Vice President of Sales and primarily concentrate on physician recruitment and relationships. How does that translate into revenue? Our main focus is to go out and recruit physicians to utilize our facilities. And we do that through a number of different programs, primarily the marketing side. So they come over, they do their surgical procedures at our facility, and when they do those procedures, that's when we bill the insurance companies and generate the revenue. So majority of our revenue at Nobilis is built around our surgical operating rooms. 
and our ASCs, our ambulatory surgery centers, and our hospitals. And our hospital is a surgical hospital. The more cases that my team can generate, the more revenue. So you have a team of individuals that are recruiting physicians, surgeons, that have a reputation of following that can bring something to the table with regard to using your surgical centers, right? That's correct, Ellis. We really primarily are in three markets, Houston, Dallas, and Scottsdale. And each market has a team of sales representatives that go out and try to recruit physicians to utilize our facilities. And then each market also has a team of physician liaisons that go out and once the physician comes on you know, decides he wants to start doing cases, they effectively onboard the physicians and get them used to our facilities and there's some equipment we have to buy for each physician so they primarily handle that and then maintain a long-term relationship and the folks that interact with the physicians on a day-to-day basis. Well I guess they would have to because after they recruited the physicians it's your responsibility as a company to ensure that their practice grows within the noblest umbrella. Yep that's correct Ellis and that is what their job is primarily focused on is making sure they're happy and if there's a different way we can work with them, we explore that option as well. Give us an idea of your background, Patrick. How did you find your way to working with Nobilis? I have always been in healthcare. I started off in pharmaceutical sales, spent a number of years with Pfizer, and then a natural progression from pharmaceutical sales is medical device sales. I worked for a minimally invasive spine company in Nashville, Tennessee for a number of years, and then when my wife and I started having kids, we decided to get closer to her family, which often often happens. I took a job with Intuitive Surgical as a sales representative here in Houston, Texas. And Intuitive Surgical is the maker of the Da Vinci surgical robot. And I spent four years with Intuitive selling robots in the Houston area and the Texas Medical Center was where I was primarily based out of. And then I got into sales management with Intuitive and actually managed their capital sales for most of Texas. So the Houston area and the Rio Grande Valley all the way out to West Texas. I was approached by Barry Kratz, Katz, one of the recruiters, and Don Kramer, Dr. Kramer. They called me in and kind of explained what Nobilis was doing. And their approach and they needed somebody to come in and start a sales force and grow their business because they had a great message they had a great plan with differentiating themselves among the other ASCs they just didn't have anybody to go out and let the world know and let the surgeons and the physicians in the community know so they needed some competent feet on the street So they brought me in about a year ago, and since then we have built a team. I think we've got, at last glance, I think we have 15 sales representatives. There's 15 folks that are in the sales department within Houston, Dallas, and Scottsdale. Let's talk about robotics. You mentioned your history in that arena. How important a role does robotics play in Nobla Surgical Centers? It's interesting. Robotics and medicine, I think we all agree there's certainly a place and it's the future is getting closer and closer. So I really feel like robotics is certainly here to stay. It only enhances a patient's ability to have a minimally invasive 
procedure. Where it fits in the ASC environment, it's still up for debate. We've elected not to invest in the Da Vinci robot and robotics at this point because most of the data that's available and most of the utilization within robotics is for more complex surgery. It's such a significant investment at this time, it's really hard to justify that type of acquisition for that something that's not really in our sweet spot. Most of our centers are outpatient surgery centers. We kind of leave the extremely complex surgeries that the robot's involved in, we leave those up to the big hospitals. So your focus, to track back a bit, is to grow the team of professional recruiters targeting physicians that could benefit from a noblest facility. At what point do you hit market saturation? Is there an endless upside to recruiting? I mean, at what point can you say, we're done here? There's really not. I mean, there's not an end point to this. I mean, you look at the Houston market. You know, Ellis, I think there's 10,000 physicians in Houston. I would love to reach all of them because we can have a conversation with all 10,000 physicians. But really, my team is focused on physicians that have been a part of outpatient surgery centers before. Those folks usually are orthopedic surgeons, spine, ENT, pain management, some general surgery. Those are the primary focus areas for my team. The job's never done. We've barely scratched the surface. I will say, though, Ellis, we've gotten now to a point where this reminds me of when I was with Intuitive in some ways. We've crossed a chasm, so to speak, Ellis, where we are not as actively recruiting physicians now because of our marketing efforts and because that's what we've become known for, we're at a point where physicians are now contacting us and we're in a good position to say, you know what, we'd like to work with this physician and maybe this physician's not a great fit. So we can ensure the highest quality and return on the investment. So the marketing team in conjunction with your sales staff has created great market awareness and these physicians are contacting you to use the noblest facilities. Absolutely. I mean, they've done an incredible job and I tell them though that when I'm interviewing, people always ask, well, there's a specific personality that does really well in this line of sales and that's from the medical device background. Most of my sales team has a medical device background and so one of the first questions they ask is what product would I be selling? Well, the difference is there's not so much a product, but really a service that we can provide and a differentiator in the marketplace. And that's where the marketing comes into play. And people are just wild, especially physicians, are just wild when we go through our marketing capabilities. There's no one else in this space that are in Houston, Dallas, and Scottsdale for sure. There's no one else doing this quite like we are. No one has the marketing capabilities and infrastructure that we have. Most of the competition that's out there has the same old model where they have physician partners. Well, that model has been shown to fail time and time again. We can do that. We can do all the other things that everyone else can do. But where we really differentiate ourselves is we have the unique ability to increase a physician's patient inflow through our marketing services. And in today's climate, 
That's incredibly important to a physician, is especially a lot of these specialties where they're seeing their patient volume dwindle and it's a little bit of a crunch. Well, we can offer them the opportunity to increase their patient volume. There's very few ASCs and hospitals that really can say they do that. Would you say that your method of doing business is unique to Nobilis? And I'm talking about on a national scale. Yes, it is. I've yet to come across a physician that says, oh, well, this hospital or this surgery center is already doing this to the scale that we can. They've tried their hand at a few commercials. Maybe they've got a web presence. But again, it comes back to the marketing infrastructure that we've built. And some of it we had in place before the Athos merger. But when we acquired Athos, it took us to a completely different level where every dollar spent and every patient that calls into our call center is tracked. We know where everything is. So when a physician asks, well, where is this patient or how do my numbers look? We can pull it right up and show them, hey, this is how many patients we added to your practice over the last month or two. No one else has those capabilities. If they do have those capabilities, they're not effectively communicating and marketing in our spaces. Let me ask you what I've asked other principals in Nobilis. Given the success you've been having in the Houston, Dallas, and Scottsdale areas, why wouldn't you take this method of service and success to other parts of the country. Are you going to make sure you can cover and manage the large areas you already placed in before increasing your national footprint? That's my understanding. I mean, Texas is such a great state to get started and and prove success. I mean, we could be a very successful business if we just stayed in Texas and in Scottsdale, but that's not the plan. I mean, this model is reproducible and we can certainly take it to different markets. And it should be, there's no reason to think it wouldn't be as accepted as that has been in Texas and Arizona. I think within the last year, we've branched out of Texas and are starting to see some success in Arizona. So I think we'll continue to monitor that success in Arizona and continue to grow in Texas. And then at some point, I can't imagine us not being in different markets in different states. In some ways, with the Athos brand, we already are in other states. They do have some existing relationships in, I believe, Detroit, New Jersey. So they've got relationships in other states. What do you feel your strongest suit is when you're prospecting for new growth through the program you've just outlined? I think the biggest thing is what my salespeople and what I'm armed with is when I go out and recruit physicians and maintain these relationships is the unique ways that we can market physicians. And that's our strong suit. Our core competence is within the marketing. I'd say that that is what separates us from everyone else. You must have a close relationship with Chief Marketing Officer Adam Arnett then. We are developing one, yes. Adam and I are are starting to talk on a daily basis, and that is um, something that was really interesting with that merger. You just found two companies that it fit perfectly. They filled some of our gaps, and we filled some of their gaps. And for us to pull off within, I think it was a four to six time frame where almost 90% of the patients that were in the Mathis brand, six weeks within closing, we're already coming over to our facility. So I think that speaks to the team more than anything. Everyone bought in to what we were trying to do, and we all pulled in the, the same direction and accomplished. When we set out to do it, I really had my doubts. 
so that we were able to going to be able to capture 90% of those patients before the end of the year. But sure enough, we were able to accomplish that. So Adam and I have, have started talking on a very frequent basis. In fact, we hold weekly calls with Athis and Athis Legacy Management and Nobilis Management just to make sure we're all pulling in the same direction. Well, Patrick, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I thank you for joining us on the program. Ellis, thanks for having me. I've been chatting with Patrick Yoder. Vice President of Sales for Noblest Health, trading on the TSX under the symbol NHC.TO. That's NHC.TO. And in the U.S. as HLTH. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire program on iTunes. Thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you've enjoyed the program. Contact me via email, martinreports at gmail.com. That's martinreports at gmail.com. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's ellismartinreport.com. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 